thou thyself maintain them in holiness. O divine and great High Priest, may the power of thy mercy accompany them everywhere and protect them from the devil's traps and snares, which are continually being set for the souls of priests. May the power of thy mercy, O Lord, shatter and bring to naught all that might tarnish the sanctity of priests. For thou canst do all things. Amen. Virgin most powerful, pray for us. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I am your host, Matthew Arnold, and please God, the confusion stops here. Today we're going to continue our series on prayer that we started last week, and we're also going to take a look, a good look, at the uh, the second most frequented of all the sacraments, perhaps not frequented enough, but second most. Uh, but first, we're going to look at the Gospel for last Sunday, the Octave of Easter, or also known as Low Sunday, and the story of Doubting Thomas. So this is the continuation of the Holy Gospel according to St. John. At that time, it was late the same, that same day, the first of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were gathered together for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. He said, therefore, to them again, Peace be to you, as the Father hath sent me, I also send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Jesus cometh, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be to you. Then he saith to Thomas, Put in thy finger hither, and see my hands, and bring hither thy hand, and put it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith to him, Because thou hast seen me, Thomas, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. Many other signs also did Jesus in the sight of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now there's quite a lot here, including the institution of the Sacrament of Penance, which we're going to be talking about later in the program. But right now I want to focus on Thomas the Doubter and Jesus' words, Blessed are they that have not seen and have believed. So I guess the first question is, why did Thomas doubt the other apostles? Why did he doubt that they had seen the risen Christ? Why would he refuse to accept their eyewitness testimony? Well, there's a clue in the gospel when it identifies Thomas as one of the twelve who is called Didymus. Now, in the New Testament, there's lots of uh, uh, persons with more than one name. Saul of Tarsus, for example, we know as uh, St. Paul, you know him by his Greek name. Uh, the John Mark in the book of Acts <clears throat> is also the, the Mark who wrote the gospel of that name, John being his Hebrew name and Mark his Roman name. Uh, Peter is the name that our Lord gave to Simon when he made him the, the head of the church. <clears throat> and it's, we also have Thomas here, and it says Thomas, who is called Didymus. So Didymus is more of a, uh, I think, like a, a nickname, and it means twin. Now, I suspect this little tidbit is uh, revealed in this context 
to show us that um, since Thomas was a twin, that uh, it's very reasonable to assume that he had been the object of mistaken identity pretty much his whole life, which underlies his skepticism. You know, he says, just because you saw somebody that looked like Jesus, that doesn't mean it really was Jesus. And so he says, except I shall see in his hand the print of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas, he was one of the twelve. He has repeatedly shown his love for Jesus. He's repeatedly shown his faithfulness. But he couldn't bring himself to believe in this bodily resurrection based on the fact that they saw somebody that they thought was Jesus. And, you know, he didn't even trust that they had, in fact, seen his wounds because he says, uh, you know, he demands not only to see the wounds, but to actually touch them before he would believe. Now, strictly speaking, the, the unbelief of Thomas is unreasonable. And that's why he's rebuked by the Lord. Be not faithless, but believing, he says. Thomas should have trusted the testimony of the other apostles. Uh, but also, Thomas, as an apostle, was called upon to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since an eyewitness can only give evidence of what they've seen with their own eyes, Jesus, the good shepherd, goes after the, the wandering sheep, so to speak, and appears to Thomas to convince him of the reality of the resurrection so that he might declare it to the world as an eyewitness, along with the other apostles. Also, God permitted Thomas to disbelieve that Christ had appeared to the other disciples. And, and there's a reason. It was so that we might be strengthened in our faith. Because Christ appeared again, and, and by that means took all doubt away from Thomas, the resurrection becomes, um, according to Pope St. Gregory the Great, the more credible and certain so by the providence of God, the unbelief of Thomas is very useful to us. St. Gregory put it this way, he said, By touching the Lord's wounds, the apostle has healed forever the wounds of unbelief in our hearts. And thus the unbelief of Thomas is a greater help to our belief than the faith of the other apostles. Because it takes away that, that possibility of mistaken identity. Also, our Lord knew that Thomas had the will to believe. He was of good will, being one of the twelve. And therefore, he appeared to him as uh, he wished, so as to remove all doubt from his mind. Thomas was an apostle. He would be called upon to bear witness both to the Jews um, and to the Gentiles. So our Lord commanded him, put your finger into the marks of the wounds. Put your hand into my side. And only then did he believe that our Lord was really standing before him in his own risen body. But the resurrection made him recognize the divinity of Christ, and he sank on his knees before Jesus and worshipped him. So he's making atonement for his, for his uh, former skepticism by the most explicit act of faith, to kneel down and adore. This is the sixth apparition of our Lord, and it is a further proof, not only of the resurrection, but of his divinity. Because, again, you know, he knows what Thomas is thinking. He's omniscient, you know, which only God can be. And when Thomas worshipped him, called him Lord and God, and kneeled at his feet, he didn't say, you know, what are you doing? Get up. I'm not God. On the contrary, he accepts the apostles' adoration, and he calls blessed all of those who would believe without requiring such concrete evidence. And Thomas's merit... Uh, would certainly have been greater if he had believed the, the testimony of the other apostles. But his faith was not without merit. I mean, sometimes I think we might be inclined to think that, uh, that Thomas's faith was not a virtue because uh, he only believed after he'd been given the, the proof of the resurrection, after he'd seen and touched the, the risen Savior. But that, that would be a mistake because it was only the body and the wounds of our Lord that Thomas could see, he couldn't see his divinity. But Thomas had the will to believe, and so the marks of the resurrection enabled him to recognize the divinity of Christ and to proclaim it, believe in it. His faith, therefore, like all true faith, is a gift of God. It was genuine, it was meritorious. And, you know, you compare that to the chief priests and scribes, who even if they had seen and touched the risen Lord, they still wouldn't have believed in him because they lacked the will to believe. Remember the words of our Lord, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. Which brings us to a question, what is it, what does it mean to believe in God? And this is the traditional sermon topic 
uh, for Low Sunday. To believe in God is to receive as absolutely certain all that God has revealed to us, even when it's mysterious, even when we can't fully comprehend it. And why must we believe all that God has revealed? Well, precisely because it is God, the infallible truth, who can neither deceive nor be deceived, who is revealing it, who has revealed it. In other words, our motive of, uh, for belief is not our rational apprehension. It's not our acceptance of what has been revealed, but who has revealed it, namely God. And this, this belief is as necessary to salvation as it is perfectly reasonable. And that is assuming that we can know for certain what God has or has not revealed. And how can we know? Well, the answer is that Jesus Christ teaches us through the Catholic Church that he established, that, uh, that is guided by the Holy Ghost into all truth, and in which Jesus himself dwells until the end of time, as he promised. But how can we know which church is the true church? And, well, it's by this, that like the truth, the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And which church has those four marks? Answer the Roman Catholic Church. She alone has preserved unity in faith and the holy sacraments, remains subordinate to the one visible head, the Pope. She alone can trace her descent from the apostles to the present day and demonstrate uh, this origin as well by her doctrine as the succession of uh, popes and bishops. She alone has all the means of salvation. She alone has produced the saints. She alone embraces all ages and shines, as St. Augustine says, from one end of the world to the other in the splendor of one and the same faith, inviting all to her bosom to bring them to Jesus. See, the, true, the church is truly Catholic, and all people of good will are welcome. So, as a Catholic, if you encounter objections to purgatory or prayer to the saints or, you know, the Holy Mass and so forth, you should say, I believe these things, I believe all of the matters of faith, because God, who is truth, has revealed them, and I believe he's revealed them because the Roman Catholic Church teaches to me, uh, teaches them to me, who has all the marks of the true church. Now, it's not sufficient just to believe, we must also live according to faith and observe all that it commands, avoid what it forbids, and every day make an act of faith. And that, my friends, is no nonsense. All right, back with confession and lots more right after this. Stay with us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. back to uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No-Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. In Matthew's Gospel, we read the account of four men who had their paralyzed friend on a stretcher and lowered him down through the roof of St. Peter's house so that Jesus could heal him. You know, there was such a big crowd they couldn't get to him, and so they made a hole in the roof and lowered their friend down. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, be of good heart, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. And behold, some of the scribes said within themselves, He blasphemeth. And Jesus, seeing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Thy sins are forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thy house." And he arose and went into his house, and the multitude, seeing it, feared and glorified God that gave such power to men. Now this is an important foreshadowing that God would indeed give to men the power to forgive sins in his name. Uh, this is precisely what we read in the gospel for Low Sunday, which we started the last segment with. Jesus breathed on the apostles and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. This was the institution of the sacrament of penance. I often mention how the, the, the Triduum begins and ends with the priesthood. With the establishment of the priesthood of the Last Supper on Holy Thursday, and here with the, uh, with the fullness of the priesthood being granted on Easter Sunday night with the, uh, the power to forgive sins. Uh, so confession Confession is one of the greatest, one of the easiest of all means that have been given us uh, 
to become saints. Now, um, there's a lot to say about confession. I've talked about it any number of times on this program. Um, but the stuff I'm going to share with you today comes primarily from Father Paul O'Sullivan and his fine little book called An Easy Way to Become a Saint. I highly recommend Father O'Sullivan's works. They're very good. They're very traditional. Of course, they're written in the uh, 30s and 40s for the most part. And uh, he was a Dominican, although I, uh, in the first part of this book, there's a whole section about loving God that seems to come pretty much right out of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. So you can imagine why I'm uh, a big fan of Father O'Sullivan. And, and he just, he very much breaks things down to an easy way to, uh, to share a spirituality that's well-suited for the common person, all right? The, the regular Catholic, if you will. So, Father Paul O'Sullivan, and he, he asks the, the question, why did Jesus come to the earth? Why did he live with us for, for 33 years? Why did he suffer and die? The answer, of course, is to save us from sin and to help us to overcome our, our concupiscence, to, to sin no more. So, uh, Father says, surely he must have left us some uh, special and powerful means to overcome sin and temptation. And that means uh, is confession, right? All the sacraments. Uh, but confession especially because this is how we have our sins forgiven after baptism. But a lot of Catholics have uh, an erroneous idea about confession because they, they look at it as something difficult, something uh, distasteful. I mean, I've been Catholic long enough to know what it feels like to not want to go to confession, to not want to go into that box and accuse myself of the same stupid faults that I uh, you know, continue to fall into. But it isn't difficult. I mean, God meant it as a divine help to overcome our weakness, to overcome our inclination to evil. God knows that we're weak. God knows that we're inclined to evil. God knows that we've committed these sins. And so he's given us this way to, to be freed from the guilt of that, and, and, which is an immense consolation, especially in times of trial and, and difficulty in your life. And that is most certainly true to anybody that takes the time to try and understand it. You know, in Father O'Sullivan, in his book, he mentions that several uh, times in his life as a priest, Protestants had come to him and asked for confession. And he's had to say, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't grant you absolution if you're not Catholic. He talks about how sorely disappointed they are uh, when he told them that he was unable to do that. And, and as a consequence, some of them, you know, came into the church. They started preparing, you know, right away to be received in the church. Somebody, he said a man came to him once to, to be received into the church, and he asked him why, like you do, presumably. And he said, because I want to be able to go to confession. This guy's a lifelong Protestant, but he says there's nothing in our church that would help and console us the way confession does Catholics. And, and he converted. So, but there's so many questions about, and of course our separated brethren, even our fellow Catholics sometimes, why, why do I have to uh, confess my sins to, to a man? You know, uh, a priest is just a man like the rest of us. Well, the answer is that God, I mean, we just read it in the, in the gospel. God, in his infinite goodness, saw how much our poor hearts need comfort, and, and, and therefore by this act of, you know, his infinite power and his infinite wisdom, he gave us the priesthood, and he gave to them the, the power to forgive sins in his name. And he also gives them the, the, uh, the insight, the wisdom necessary to console and counsel uh, poor sinners. And he, he actually gives a bunch of uh, uh, examples of the kind of everyday wonders of confession, like the, the, the young boy, a poor boy who's tempted to, 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 and steals and he goes into confession, and he, and he confesses, and the priest shows him not only the, the, you know, the kind of uh, the malice of, of breaking the seventh commandment, but how dangerous it is to him, how uh, uh, if he's discovered, it's going to destroy his character. He's going to be branded a thief, and the boy never steals again. Or the young woman who's uh, um, you know, uh, falling under the spell of, of some unscrupulous fellow, uh, you know, and and a, and a word from the priest in confession, and her eyes are opened, and, and she saves her honor. Or our husband and wife who, who's unfaithful, you know, and starts on, the, on that, you know, course and, and goes to confess it. And once more, you've got to confess it with a timely warning, saving a family from ruin. You know, all, all of these things. And, and people in, in, in high position, doctors, lawyers, statesmen, judges, what, who go to confession, confess their negligences, uh, in their own duties, and, and the counsel of a priest 
uh, can help them to be serious and upright. He even says how many how many Protestants have been uh, surprised by receiving a sum of money uh, that had been stolen from them, right? Because, of course, like I say, he's writing back in the day, and, and restitution is an important part of, uh, of making up for your sin. And he says, you know, you get these people, even a large sum of money, and the priest comes and says, you know, and, and says that the person asked him to restore it to them. So, you know, for any right-minded person, you, you see the confession doesn't just represent a, a personal benefit for the sinner, but it's actually a safeguard for society. These are the kind of the fumes that our culture is continuing to, to run on and that are running short, I'm sorry to say, in, in our uh, current situation. Anyway, wonderful, uh, um, wonderful benefits, but the power of forgiving sins, I mean, the Pharisees were right technically, that power belongs to God alone. Only God can, can uh, pardon sins. Even the, the greatest angel in heaven can't absolve one sin. But God, by this infinite power and mercy, has given priests that power. St. Alphonsus Liguori said that if our Lord Jesus Christ himself was to sit in one confessional and a simple priest in another, that the sinners who came to the priest would be as fully pardoned, they were, their sins would be every bit as absolved if they had uh, confessed them to Christ. And he says what a, what a, when a priest uh, absolves from sin, he uses a power greater than the power used by God to create the world. And in proportion to this power are the benefits that we receive. You know, like all the sacraments are channels of grace and, uh, you know, which flow from the heart of God uh, to us poor sinners. And I think that, um, and with Father Solomon, I should say I agree, that um, there are very few these days who appreciate or fully appreciate this, this divine gift, even though it's a wonderful reality in our lives. St. Peter says it's, it's a real participation in the divine nature raising us up, ennobling us, uh, strengthening, purifying, beautifying our souls, making them like the angels and like God himself. Gives us a, a, grace gives us a new life, you know, literally. It gives light to our understanding by which we can grasp divine truths which God has revealed to us, which otherwise we could never understand. And it gives new energy to our will. Right? It, it, it strengthens the will. It, it, it enlightens the darkened mind. But confession has its own special graces that, that uh, Father O'Sullivan says we consider well. In fact, he says there are seven graces that we get from confession that we should think about. First of all, of course, pardon from our sins. Secondly, uh, confession gives us light to see the enormity of sin, just how bad it really is. Thirdly, it gives us strength to avoid sin. Fourthly, it's the easiest and best penance we can possibly perform because it washes our souls in the precious blood of Christ. It thus lessens our time in purgatory or even delivers us uh, from it altogether. Fifthly, it comforts and consoles us most effectively. Sixthly, it makes us love God and hate sin. And seventh, it uh, helps us to correct our defects, which make us disagreeable to others, makes us so unhappy in ourselves, and makes us offend God. We are weak, and confession gives us new strength and life so that a person who falls constantly into great sins and cannot avoid them will be certainly able to avoid them if he goes to confession frequently. And priests, he says, are seeing this every day. Oh, everybody needs a friend, a good friend, uh, whose friendship they love and enjoy and who they can confide in, in their troubles and their difficulties and ask for advice. And certainly the confessor is a good friend. I mean, that's one of the great blessings that God can give us, but, but confession gives us this friend. In confession, we meet a man who's there expressly to love and console us. We're, we're facing a, um, you know, a, a tribunal of, of mercy. He's been prepared especially for this work by long years of training. He has the grace of ordination. He's kind, he's helpful, and we can open our hearts to the, to the priest in confession knowing that he's going to understand and he's competent to give us uh, the best possible advice in regard, you know, the salvation of our souls. And we're equally certain he's going to keep it absolutely secret. Anything that you say to a priest in confession will never go beyond that. It's really between you and God. And he's there, you know, acting in the person of Christ. And a priest never breaks faith with a penitent. And confession is, well, if not easy, it's simple at least. And, but it's also very holy. 
I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing, a divine thing. And because of that, if we're going to approach this, we should make preparation. It doesn't have to be a long preparation, but it does need to be sincere and fervent. And Father O'Sullivan says that's why so many confessions do so little good, is that Catholics fail to make that fervent preparation. He says to go to, to confession without serious preparation is uh, to tempt God. It's, it's profane. You know, it's too profane, the Holy Sacrament. Confession's simple, but we have to treat it with, its, with due respect. God tells us that he does not cast his pearls before swine. And those are hard words, but they're very true. We need to pray, and we need to be fervent. We need to, uh, for example, uh, preparation for confession, the, uh, the first three of the sorrowful mysteries, or uh, to meditate on, on the way of the cross, right, on the passion. And then, um, you know, make a careful examination of conscience so that we'll be able to see and be able to confess our faults clearly and briefly. And the most important part of that preparation is to incite true contrition. And we're going to talk about that and lots more when we come back. Glad to have you with us here uh, for No Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we will return with lots more right after these messages. So please stay with us. All right, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Finishing up with our uh, uh, considerations of confession, right before the break I said that the, one of the most important things was to excite in oneself sorrow or contrition, true contrition for our sins, and to make a firm resolution to avoid sin in the future, all mortal sins as best we can, uh, even venial sins. And uh, if we're not sincerely sorry for our sins... And if we're not firmly resolved to avoid sins, then we're insulting God when we go to confession. Because this isn't a mechanical process. It's about, um, you know, going to God. It, it, and the key to, the, the, um, to true contrition, to real sorrow for our sins, is to, understanding, uh, is to understand, rather, the horrible malice of sin. Mortal sin is a deliberate offense against God. <clears throat> Think about the... the, uh, the conditions for mortal sin. You have to know that it's a grave matter. You have to know that it's a sin. And then you have to willfully choose to do it anyway. Right? So it is, this is, this is, every mortal sin is a direct affront to God. Now, nobody would do anything wrong. Nobody commits a crime if they know that a policeman's watching. Right? I'm sure I've mentioned this on other programs, but, uh, at one point in my checkered past, I, uh, for a short time, drove a bus for the Anaheim Resort Transit, you know, primarily picking up tourists at various hotels and taking them to Disneyland. Well, in the bus, there was a camera, and the camera was constantly recording a 30-second loop, and every 30 seconds, it would dump what it had recorded and start recording again. And um, if anything, you know, if there was any impact on the bus, even if you went over a, a speed bump too fast and, and, you know, jolted the bus around, the camera would capture 30 seconds, the 15 seconds before the impact and the 15 seconds after. And in fact, there were two cameras. There was one giving the driver's point of view and then there was one pointing at the driver. So that information would be relayed instantly to the computer of the safety officer back at the uh, uh, station and he would see what, what the bus driver saw, and he would see what the bus driver did. And believe me, having that little camera right in your face and seeing that little blinking light, it kept you uh, on the up and up. Nobody wants to, you know, nobody commits a sin when they know somebody's watching. But we know intellectually that God sees everything, right? That, that he's always looking at us. And yet we still deliberately offend him. We offend him, you know, right to his face, so to speak. And you think about the, uh, the consequence, the fire of purgatory, even when your sins have been forgiven. If you die without having make, made, uh, uh, you know, given satisfaction for those sins, right? I mean, the, the guilt is forgiven, but the, uh, you know, it still remains that there's punishment due for these sins, and if you don't remit that punishment during your life, you're going to do it in the flames of purgatory, which, and I know there's been a lot said about this, and I know that purgatory is a mercy, 
and I thank God for it. But I tell you this, the saints and the doctors of the church tell us that the fires of purgatory are the same as the fires of hell. The only difference being is that they don't go on forever. And that is something that I, for one, would like to avoid. I mean, even to, to die with, with a, an unforgiven and deliberate venial sin on your soul will, you know, uh, could send you into purgatory. And you understand that God could never punish us too severely. He's perfectly just. He doesn't, you know, send us to purgatory because he's angry with us. But because the malice of a deliberate sin is simply, you know, it's simply so awful, and mortal sin even more so, and you cannot enter heaven, you know, there's nothing, uh, the saints tell us, so terrible on earth as a deliberate sin. And that if you could see a soul in deliberate sin, it says, uh, Father O'Sullivan says, if you were to see a dead body in horrible corruption, this is one of the things that I, I hate about uh, those, all those zombie programs that they have these days, is it's desensitizing people to, you know, th- this vision of, uh, you know, hordes of rotting corpses, um, you know, uh, roaming the earth. But a sin or a soul in a state of sin is uglier to God than, you know, this, this rotting corpse image. And if a soul was to enter heaven in that condition, even with one venial sin, it would willingly throw itself into the fires of purgatory in order to be cleansed rather than to be uh, in the presence of God in that condition. St. Paul says that by our sins, we crucify again and make a mockery of our Lord. And through absolution, we're pardoned, we're delivered from all of that filth and corruption, and therefore we must make sure to be really sorry. Even uh, not, not even the, the precious blood of Jesus applied to our souls is going to purify us unless we're sorry and firmly resolve to sin no more. You know, you go in and you ask for the priest's blessing and you confess your sins clearly and briefly and frankly. And then you listen to whatever advice the priest gives you and resolve to do exactly what he tells you and to do his penance. You ask any questions that you think are, are, are fit or explain any kind of difficulty that you're having. But remember, confession isn't a therapy session. Okay, it's a tribunal. It is a court of mercy where you go precisely to plead guilty. And then finally, when the priest is giving us absolution, you say our act of contrition, and you save it fervently, just as if it was the last time, just as if you were at the feet of Christ himself. And then after confession, you thank God for the, the wonderful grace he's given us. Say your penance sincerely, confident that God has pardoned your sins, no matter how grave they were, no matter how horrible they were. Give thanks to the priesthood, for the priesthood, and for the sacrament of confession. I, I tell you, I do that after every confession. I give thanks to God, and I give thanks to God for instituting the priesthood and for instituting the sacrament of, of confession. And it's simply incredible that, that how few Catholics really thank God the way they should for these priceless graces that we receive in confession. You know, it's the story of the ten lepers all over again. So... Remember the three B's of confession. Be brief, be brutal, and be gone. Right? And the priest will give you the absolution, and he'll say, you know, uh, God bless you, go in peace. And after leaving that professionally, you say or perform the penance that the priest has given you and start over fresh. And what a beautiful thing. All right, um, that's pretty much all I wanted to say about that. And I want to move on. We've been talking about prayer And I wanted to talk a little bit, um, last week I mentioned that prayer um, is a conversation, that prayer is a dialogue. And we get that from uh, Fulton Sheen said, prayer is a dialogue. And the question is, um, you know, in a dialogue, we we don't just speak, we also listen, right? And listening doesn't mean waiting to talk again, it means actually listening. But how do you do that with God? How does God talk to us? That was the question that I left us with last week. Well, um, and again, this is kind of based on the teaching of uh, Father Bill McCarthy from out in uh, our father's house out in Connecticut. He says that the heart of um, Christianity is, is having this personal relationship with Jesus, and the heart of that relationship is love, and at the heart of love is communication. And he says that Jesus communicates with us. Now, we've been already talking about us communicating with him, but this is a major theme of the Bible. Um, God talks to us. You know, I, I mentioned these themes of the Bible on a number of occasions, that 
that uh, the words be not afraid or don't be afraid or don't be anxious, right? Words to that effect are present in the scriptures some 365 times, right? So once for every day of the year, clearly that's a theme. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that uh, the commandment to rejoice uh, appears in the Bible some 800 times, more than twice as much as the, as the don't be afraid uh, uh, admonition. But the words, thus says the Lord, or the Lord said, words to that effect, appear in the Bible 8,000 times, or, or 5,000, more than 5,000 times. So it's all over the place. I mean, you just open the, the Old Testament and God is speaking to, to Adam, to, to Noah, to Abel and, and uh, um, you know, Rebecca and Moses, and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and Aaron and so on. If you open the New Testament, there's Jesus talking to everybody. Even after the ascension, he sends his spirit, he says, to, to tell us everything. So Jesus talks to us and he reveals himself in his word. He reveals himself in creation in the, the new and eternal covenant, in the law uh, of, of God, in, in, in the law of nature, in the gospel, in, you know, uh, in his indwelling presence as wisdom and, and as, as in prophecy. All of these ways that God is talking to us, that Jesus is revealing himself. Back in the 14th century, uh, uh, Catherine of Siena, a great medieval saint, was asked why it was that God communicated to so many people during biblical times, but uh, today, today meaning the 1300s in this case, hardly anybody hears God. And Catherine of Siena said, because during those days their prayer was, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Whereas today our prayer is, Listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. So how do we define prayer? I mean, how does a typical American Christian uh, or Catholic define prayer? And most often they'll say it's talking to God, right? St. John Damascene gave us the, the, uh, the kind of the catechism answer that, that um, prayer is raising the heart and mind to God and asking of him uh, for good things. But prayer isn't just talking to God, as I mentioned uh, just a minute ago. It's better defined as a conversation, as, as a dialogue. It's talking and listening. And so prayer is two-sided. And so when we talk to God with sentiments of, you know, well, the four great ends of prayer, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and then supplication, asking for things, interceding for others, and so on. But God also talks to us. So how do we hear him? Well, there's, there's ways in which that God speaks to us, and they're external and internal. And I've talked about a number of the external ways just, just uh, now, you know, through the, through the Bible, through the teaching of the church, um, through our bishops and priests, even through our, uh, you know, our, our friends and family and our circumstances and the people in our lives and the lives of the saints and so forth, right? Reading, uh, spiritual reading. God is speaking to us through those things. We're going to talk about that uh, in the next uh, segment about meditation. But he also speaks to us internally. So that's through our thoughts and our uh, desires and our intuitions, even our dreams. He's revealed himself in these, in these great covenants. And in the old covenant, it was primarily outward through, through creation and, and through the priests and prophets and kings. And now... Christ in the new covenant dwells within us and speaks to us in our thoughts, in our minds, and in our circumstances. And that's no nonsense. All right, talking about meditation when we return right after this on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stick with us. back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, and we're talking about prayer, actually meditation, and uh, as an answer to the quest for Christian perfection. This is a very medieval idea, the quest for Christian perfection, and I've often said that uh, the Second Vatican Council has a medieval mentality because it refers to this as the universal call to holiness, and we see it very explicitly in the, the uh, Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, and for you and I, um, more specifically in the document Apostolicum Axiositatem, which is for the laity of the Church. And it really, it, it stems from our Lord Jesus and his admonition to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Or as St. Paul says, 
this is God's will for you, your sanctification, okay? So holiness is for everybody, and God expects us to become holy. And that, of course, is the entire theme of the book from Father O'Sullivan called a, An Easy Way to Become a Saint. This, by the way, these, you can get this from Tan Books. Uh, you, just, you know, go online, all the Catholic bookstores and stuff will have that. Easy Way to Become a Saint. And in this, he says, uh, or he asks the question, he says, our Lord himself um, tells us why so few become holy. He asks, why, why is it so few people are even trying to be holy when it's so clearly uh, something that, uh, that the Lord wants and that the church uh, is instructing us to do? And he says, our Lord himself tells us why so few become holy and why so few become saints. He said, the whole world, he says, is gone astray because no one thinks in his heart. It says, remark the words of our Lord, no one thinks in his heart. That is, we don't bother to understand, to realize, right, to grasp in their fullness all the truths of our religion. And as we've already said, God, you know, he, he spends the first part of this little book telling us about how God has given us our religion expressly to help us and console us and to make us happy in this world as well as in the next. And it's not difficult. He says it's not a difficult religion that's only made for saints. He said it was made for us poor sinners to strengthen our weak nature, to console our hearts, which are thirsting for peace and happiness. You know, life is, is difficult, but his religion is that, that helps, it gives it meaning, that helps you uh, cope. And he says, and if properly understood, um, it'll help us to overcome our sins and our defects and make us not only solidly happy, but really holy. And he asks how it is that we don't understand this. And he says it's because we neglect the duty, the great duty of daily meditation. And again, he's not talking about priests and religious. He's talking about all Catholics. That's why our ideas are, are, are vague or, or hazy and, and of little use to us in our sanctification. He said one clear idea is better than a thousand hazy ones. He says so the easiest way, the best way, and really the only way to have clear ideas is to make a daily meditation. And he says it doesn't consist in thinking the whole time. And he gives the formula. He says you read a little, you think a little, you make short little acts, right? You pray a little uh, and, and uh, elucidate. He says, first off, every Catholic should make a daily meditation. St. Teresa of Avila says that the person who does not meditate needs no devil to throw him into hell. He's going there on himself by himself. Second, meditation is not difficult. It's not hard to make if we learn how to make it. And that presents no great difficulty. That's what we're going to talk about in a minute. Third, if we don't meditate, we'll never see our faults or how to correct them. Fourth, if we do not meditate, we can form no idea of the malice of sin. And as a consequence, we don't feel sorry for it or avoid it. Fifth, if we do not meditate, we do not see the awful danger we're in of falling into hell. And thousands of men and women, for this reason, uh, men and women like ourselves fall into hell every day. And not a popular notion, but uh, one that's certainly corroborated by the saints and doctors. Sixth, if we do not meditate, we do not prepare for death. And we're afraid of death. We're even afraid to think about it. And that's why the reason, that's the reason that so many have bad deaths. Those who know how to meditate on death are no longer afraid of it. And moreover, they are sure to have happy deaths. And he quotes Ecclesiasticus 740. I actually had t-shirts made <laughs> with this verse on it. In all thy works, remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. And then seventh, the great happiness anyone can have on this earth, the greatest happiness anyone can have on this earth is to have a great friend and a true friend who's ready to help. And God really is uh, truly our friend in the truest sense of the word, our most loving father. Never was there a father or mother on earth who loved a child the way God loves us. And he says, the day we understand this truth will be the happiest of our lives. And again, these are all the fruits of meditation. He asks why, and again, he's writing in the 30s and 40s. He's asked why, why it is that Catholics don't go to daily Mass. Uh, he says, you know, Mass has the same value as the death of Christ on Mount Calvary. Why do they not frequently go to Holy Communion? which is the greatest grace that God can give them. 
Why do they not enjoy Holy Communion? And today, I mean, even pre-COVID, we get asked, why is it that so many Catholics don't even go to church on Sunday, much less daily? Why don't they visit God in the Blessed Sacrament, even though they pass the open door of a church, maybe even several times a day? See, they lose so many helps and consolations and, and strength and happiness that God offers them because they're not making a daily meditation. See, this, this is where he comes down to it, that he says that meditation is so important, nothing can take its place. Of course, meditation is not as, as, as holy an act as, as the holy sacrifice of the Mass or receiving communion. But Father O'Sullivan says it's more important because we cannot hear Mass properly or receive communion devoutly unless we meditate. We cannot pray as we should. In fact, we can't do anything well unless we meditate. He says, all the vocal prayers we can say will not take the place of meditation. And he says, so you have to banish the thought that it's going to be difficult or disagreeable. That is a temptation of the devil, and it's totally false. He says, it's easy and pleasant and brings us graces and blessings that otherwise we would never get. And every Catholic is bound to meditate. So, simple and easy way of meditation. Um, Something that everybody can use to their advantage. So as we said, when we um, talk about speaking or reading, you have to choose for the purpose of meditation, to choose for the purpose of meditation. Um, he says, choose a book that you like, something suits us, uh, something that has a personal appeal to us. You don't have to pick some book that you don't want to read. That doesn't even make sense. Uh, for me, I, I, my meditation largely comes from either scripture or the imitation of Christ. And, and in the imitation, Thomas Akempis says that we ought willingly to read devout and simple books as though as those that are high and profound. He says, Let not the authority of the writer offend thee, whether he be of uh, great or little learning, but let the love of um, pure truth lead thee to read. Inquire not who said this, but attend to what is said. And there are so many great little booklets. I mean, again, like uh, Father O'Sullivan has a whole series of booklets, The Wonders of the Holy Name, The Wonders of the Holy Mass, um, you know, uh, Read Me or Rue It, which is about purgatory. All, all these little, you know, just short booklets. And there's lots of short booklets on various devotions. I just got one the other day on Devotion to the Holy Face, which we're going to be talking about next week. All of these fruitful for meditation. So you start by choosing um, something to read. And he says, and you pray to the Holy Spirit for light and for guidance. You know, one of the most uh, beautiful and easiest uh, ways to do this you know, lots, there's, there, there are prayers in your prayer book uh, before any good work, prayer before meditation. There's the come Holy Spirit. But to pray the, um, a decade of the rosary and meditate on the descent of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful way to do it. it and it's a meditation in itself. You know, we've talked often about how, how the rosary is, is not just about saying the, the Our Fathers and Hail Marys, but meditating on the mysteries. And, and this one, you know, um, you see... The, the timid and, and unsophisticated and, and uneducated apostles and how, how slow they were to understand our Lord's teaching and how weak they were even after the resurrection. But then, you know, they, they are in prayer for nine days, right? The first novena there, they're praying for the coming of the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Christ. And then the Holy Ghost comes down in the church on the 10th day. And, you know, they, they, um, the, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of, of firing tongues, right? Giving light to their intellects and, and, you know, grace to their hearts. And they're completely changed. They're no longer afraid. They go out, they boldly proclaim uh, Christ crucified. And, and they're no longer rude or ignorant, but full of wisdom and knowledge. And they confounded the philosophers of Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome. And they didn't fear anything, not torture, uh, not death. They were pleased to suffer in the name of Jesus. Right? These men that have been so, so uh, timid and, and weak were able to convert the world. And that's a lesson that is most encouraging because it shows you what you and I can do with the help of God, no matter how weak we are. Okay, so after praying to the Holy Spirit, and you take up your book, and as I said before, you read a little. It says you read slowly, attentively, you know, turning over in your mind what you've read, and then apply that lesson to yourself. And then you pray, asking God to help us to understand what we've read. So you pray a little, you read a little, and you think a little. And then again, you, you read a little more, and you pray some more. A second, a third time, and always 
you know, looking for that truth and, and applying it to yourself. And then you make a practical resolution, which you bear in mind um, throughout the day. And then lastly, you pray uh, to God and ask pardon for your faults and strength to avoid them in the future. Okay? That's not difficult. What could be easier compared to the benefits that you receive from it? And of course, you, when, anytime you're going to meditate, whether, it's, whether you're doing Lexio Divina, right, whether you're reading the Holy Scriptures or you're reading some, some simple book, um, you have to have a time and a place and a plan. You have to know what you're going to read. You have to know when you're going to do it and where. You know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux used to go out into nature. He says, everything I learned about the science of the Scriptures, I learned in, in the woods and the fields because he would go into, into solitude and out into God's creation to meditate. Uh, you might want to, you know, for me, it's the, my comfy chair in the living room. And I usually do it early in the morning before everybody else is up because it gives me that time to, you need, you need time to yourself you need, where you're not going to be interrupted. Um, and then or doing it early in the day is also good because then you find that one thing and you make that the resolution of your day and you take it with you into the day. You know, it's, it's like a friend that, that to guide and teach and we can see our, our defects better. And, and, and humbly ask God the grace to pardon us and, and consider his love and ask him to make us love him more and to be able to show it more and, and to, to realize how blind we've been in the past regarding the truths of the holy religion and, and begging the Holy Spirit to help us understand better and apply more the teaching of our Lord. To meditate in this way is, is simple, but it's of great importance. Remember, read a little, think a little, Pray a little, apply the truth to yourself, and make your resolution. And that's the secret, the key to Christian meditation. All right, friends, um, so great to have been with you uh, for another hour this week. We'll look forward to doing it all again next time. As I said, we're going to talk next week about devotion to the holy face of Jesus. All that and more on the next No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat and that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity. The Glorious Mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary.